communications is leadership. You see that all the time with politics and politicians, you know, those who are very well versed and very well practiced at standing in front of a camera or in front of an audience and delivering a nice, clear, crisp message. Corporates need to do the same. So I would say there will be more demand on CEOs to behave more like political leaders in terms of their communications ability over time. Welcome to the Commerce Coffee Club podcast, where we bring you fascinating insights and conversations with communications leaders from across Fortune 500, FTSE 100, and leading global financial and professional services firms. I'm your host, Max Forsyth, founder and managing director of Search and Selection, specialist in-house communications executive search and recruitment firm based in the UK, but covering the UK and US markets. Hello and welcome to this week's Commerce Coffee Club podcast episode with the wonderful Natasha Moore. What she doesn't know about investment and asset management communications, she is a treasure trove of insights, stories, tips, experience, you name it. She's had a brilliant career starting off in political communications and then working for the likes of Janice Henderson, Investors, Morningstar, etc. She's got some great tips for anyone who is a commerce professional in the investment industry or indeed uh, for any C-suite leaders or fund managers who are looking to uh, expand their network and reach uh, and funds via the strategic use of PR and communications. So without further ado, here we go and look forward to hearing your thoughts. So Natasha Moore, welcome to the Comms Coffee Club podcast. Thank you very much. And very nice to meet you today, Max, and see you. Yeah, lovely to see you too. And whereabouts in the world are you joining us from? I am coming in from West London. So, you know, groovy old London. Here we are talking about comms again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Talking about comms on a rather damp, wet February morning. Very sort of typically British. All right. Let's get into it, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Let's wind the clock back. How did you get into communications? That's a very good question. Almost accidentally, I would say. So I came out of university with a degree in Chinese, um, having spent four years studying Chinese, language, writing, everything. That was good fun. And thought I wanted to go into become a Chinese arts dealer and did a Chinese art course and then discovered that I did not want to do that. So I ended up working in a small consultancy and I really enjoyed the comms and the public affairs part of the work. So I decided in uh, 2003 that if I really wanted to do comms and I want to do it in a sort of a national way, I should join a political party and work in their comms press office. And lo and behold, I joined the Conservative Party press office and was the communications executive for international development. And from there, kind of all leads all roads lead to communication. So fast forward, I did 10 years in politics in various different guises, but always doing communications and obviously public policy. I worked in the Conservative Party, I worked in Parliament, and then I wanted to switch into finance. And I then had to work quite hard to get everybody to be convinced that somebody who'd done political comms could do financial comms, and then to asset management communications, which I subsequently did for 10 years. So that's 20 years of career for you there. 
Great. So, yeah, and just think about your time in politics then, sort of when you joined and when you left, that must have been, what, spent time in opposition and then in government as well. So mostly in opposition, to be perfectly frank with you, which was, I have to say, a lot of fun. And then when the time came to be in government, I just didn't make the cut. And so that is the one job I never had, which I was always sorry about. I was never a special advisor. Yeah, no, but what was it like working in political comms in opposition? I must admit, I've never actually interviewed anyone who's sort of worked in communications on that side of the fence. So what's that like? It's great. So I think if you want to learn how to do communications and you want to learn how to do it quickly and properly, work in a political party in opposition because, and probably in government because there is nothing quite like it. You learn very quickly. Um, you are in front of all of the broadcast journalists, all of the print journalists, all of the regional journalists and the radio journalists um, from day one. You figure out quite quickly what it is that you are supposed to be doing and not doing. Um, And also you're very, I was very young and inexperienced and actually relied upon everybody to sort of teach me my graft. So that was, of course, those who I worked with in the team at the Conservative Party. But actually also the journalists were very helpful at the time. And they were also not because it's not their job to help you. (laughs) It's their job to report stories. But, you know, they would occasionally kind of give you a steer as to like, maybe don't do that. (laughs) or Maybe do do this. They were different times. But I learned a lot and I learned to respect the world of journalism because they are our ombudsman effectively to democracy. Um, as are a number of other stakeholders. And I also learned that if you don't have a good piece of public policy or a good argument with clear narrative and data to describe what it is that you are presenting as a choice to voters, that will be found out very quickly. So do your homework and be meticulous in the detail. Yes, very good points and very true. And actually, I love what you say about um, it being a great sort of learning environment and training ground for anyone who then sort of moves into corporate communications. I think any candidate that I've known or even hiring managers, you know, anyone who's relatively junior in their team who has come from political communications background, it's great because it is like the 24-hour news cycle, but on steroids. (laughs) and you have to be across your brief, don't you? It's very formative and it's very exciting and very addictive. And you learn very quickly if you are cut out for communications or not, because you will be dealing with a lot of people and there's a lot going on. So you're trying to respond to journalist inquiries. You're trying to push out your narrative and demonstrate the choice that you're presenting to voters. You are also trying to stack up stuff for the next week and the following week. And you're trying to make sure that you are networked as well within the organization because it doesn't matter whether you are working in politics or a corporate you always need to be networked as a communication specialist you need to understand the organization that you work for and its objectives and you need to be helping that organization to communicate those objectives and mission quite clearly in the public domain super and your background in that world and politics sort of segues quite nicely i think into your later career in asset management communications and particularly looking at geopolitical risks and you know winding that into into your comms plans and and your comms execution I, you know i think if we look at 
sort of current events in recent history. We've had COVID. Clearly, the war in Ukraine is still ongoing. There's the Israel-Palestine conflict. We then have the Houthis and obviously the impact that's having on global trade and, and shipping routes. Of course, we have also the upcoming elections later this year, both in the UK and in the US. So what learnings and uh, and what advice and what skills and experience did you then you know, kind of take from that in into your asset management communications career? So I'm actually going to start with something quite mundane and talk to you about regulation and public policy. So I think, you know, one of the things that you learn from working in political communications is the importance of the frame, the legal framework in which you operate. And I work in financial services and it is a highly regulated sector. So I think the thing that I took away from 10 years in politics, having kind of taken a bill through Parliament and gone through committee stage and all the rest of it is do not underestimate the power of you know regulation and what that does and how that affects financial services. So my first takeaway was it, we really need to be understanding what regulation is coming down the track and we really need to be abreast of it, as is the rest of the corporate. Of course it is because it has to adjust its um, operations accordingly, but it also needs to understand what it can and cannot communicate. Um, if you work for a listed organization, obviously it would be very helpful if you do a certificate in investor relations because a listed organization, so that is an organization that's publicly listed on a stock exchange, is subject to certain requirements when communicating certain things. So you need to understand what you can and cannot say um, and in which way you cannot say it and can say it. So that was important too. And then as I've worked in asset management for 10 years, as I've seen the trend transition into green finance and ESG and the regulatory regime within Europe, you know, it's really important for asset managers to understand what is required of them when it comes to reporting, but also what it, what, is, what it is that clients are looking for them to deliver beyond return on investment when it comes to the regulatory framework. So that's quite dull, but very important. The other thing I would say that I learned from having worked in politics and moving to a corporate is clarity of message and simplicity of message. And that, you know, communications is leadership. You see that all the time with politics and politicians, you know, those who are very well versed and very well practiced at standing in front of a camera or in front of an audience and delivering a nice, clear, crisp message. Well, corporates you know, need to do the same. So I would say there will be more demand on CEOs to behave more like political leaders in terms of their communications ability over time. And by that, I mean, I think for CEOs, for a long time, they, they had to communicate to their board, to their shareholders, to their employees, and they had to do some media. And now they are being asked increasingly to communicate via multiple mediums, including podcasts and, you know, phones, uh, to a growing number of stakeholders. And that's a lot for them and on top of the day job. But they can certainly do it if they build that skill set and they practice and they have a nice, clear, simple message. Yeah. And you have a couple of examples in your career where you know, kind of where you've done that or where you've helped, you know, a CEO to be across that whole brief. And I don't know, perhaps perhaps somebody who maybe media and communications didn't necessarily come entirely naturally to them. And obviously, why would it? And you sort of helped to coach them through that and sort of raise their profile. 
To be honest with you, less so with the CEOs as they tend to be kind of, they, they're they more well-practiced and they're more well-versed. They've got to that position for a reason and they've developed their communication skills over time. But certainly with fund managers um, who are either young or new or haven't done media in the past, I have definitely enjoyed working with them and helping them to shine a light on their skill and expertise and their opinion of the world because I think that is, you know, really important when you're talking about active fund managers that they are able to express why you know why their investment strategy is the right strategy for now so that has been very very rewarding especially if they um, are feeling you know for the all the right reasons a little bit sort of shy or nervous or they haven't had any practice to help them to kind of build out their messaging be crisp and clear and understand that you know repetition is the key you don't want to say the same thing all the time because that doesn't you know build a story for all journalists they always need something new but you want to be talking about your thematics on a regular basis yes and how do you get that balance right between making that engaging creative to an extent but also fitting that within the regulatory framework because obviously they are they have one hand slightly tied behind their backs in terms of what and how they can say things you work with them i mean so i mean so i let's go back to your point about what did i learn from politics when i moved into finance so let's think about capital markets capital markets move on the basis of information as much as anything else you know news to capital markets is as important as it is to politicians and it can and it can create movement in capital markets. And we have a big year this year with almost 40% of the world's population going to the polls. So there's a lot going on from a geopolitical perspective this year alone. So I think for, you know, for a lot of people in finance, they don't necessarily want to talk about the right or the wrong outcome as a result of a of an election and why would they but they do want to talk about how markets will move on the basis of um, an election result or how markets will respond to election results or to political volatility will can produce market volatility um, so you want to work with your experts because they do know what they want to say and they do know how they want to it but they don't quite know how to put it all together necessarily and get them there yes and i think it's um probably a fairly good analogy for this would be when they're getting the first train of the morning into the city they're all on the ft or you know kind of reading bloomberg or whatever so they're constantly absorbing news and what's going on in yeah in the wider world and politics and they're taking that all in and that's all going into their brain and they're working out what they're going to do in their pre-market trading patterns, etc. So it's just a case of taking all of that information that's going in and helping it to come out of the mouth. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And obviously, you know, there are multiple um, investment strategies for multiple choices. So, you know, somebody is one, one fund manager will have an ESG strategy, another fund manager will have an emerging market strategy, another fund manager will have, you know, whatever you, you get my point. So what you want, so for them, how capital markets are moving or reacting to news or activity around the world will affect their strategies differently. So they may or may not want to comment. Uh, it depends. I certainly think that last year was a big year for, you know, the UK and capital markets generally. There was a lot happening post-pandemic, but I think the fact that we saw inflation come back um, in a big way was after, you know, 
after the GFC, after 15 years of ultra low interest rates. And let's remember before the GFC, interest rates were averaging about 5%. And then we went into this ultra low period, which everybody equated to be normal, but it is actually just a period of time. And now inflation is back. And now, you know, with inflation, there is a, a lot of, there has been quite a lot of flux and change with asset allocation and diversification. And, you know, we still see a lot of speculation around, you know, interest rates uh, around the world and where will they go over the coming six to 12 months and that is I think you know that is something that is is newsworthy because you know it always is but that's just one that's just one small aspect of what can happen in capital markets in a in a day in a five minute window yes and as a communicator how do you build trust with the fund managers how do you build trust with your stakeholders it's a good question I think I think that this is the thing that they would a fund manager would never want me to say, but the reality is this, is when a politician stands up in, at the dispatch box in the Houses of Commons in the chamber and defends his or her position on a piece of policy um, and his or her um, view on a piece of policy, that person is basically standing up and saying, this position is the correct position and this is the rationale for why it is the correct position and you present the evidence as such, right? Whether you're in government or whether you're in opposition, you are you are creating a narrative and you are and you are demonstrating uh, your ability to be in government because of the choices that your political party is going to make in government or is demonstrating it's going to make in opposition. When a fund, this so, and a fund manager, an active fund manager, is taking an investment policy and working with a team of analysts and other fund managers, and creating an investment strategy and making the choices on the basis of a very structured, highly analytical um, set of research. And that person is then going to go to clients and explain the strategy, explain how the strategy works and explain why the strategy will work over time. And for me, those are quite common themes. So I think demonstrating that you understand that you are working with their reputation, that they have spent many years, days, hours to build and you are going to help them to enhance that reputation because you understand their risk, their view of risk, and you understand their view of the world and the gravity of the situation is really helpful. It is not something where you want to be fast and loose. You want to demonstrate to them that their reputation, their 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 opinion, their value is valuable to the media and you're going to help them to express that in the public domain and just thinking about the blend there between you're right as an external communications professional your official jd a lot of it will be around the media relations the journalist engagement or leadership you name it whatever there's an important bit that you mentioned there around client communications and you know, making sure that that message is consistent across all those fronts. So where does your role sit in the comms team and and how closely do you work with the client communications team to ensure that that messaging is aligned? So you're often the first to respond. But if something new is happening that is unexpected, 
which let's face it, it does happen. You're also the first um, uh, in the headlights to be asked to respond. So what you want to do is you just want to make sure you're on top of those um, new stories as they play out and you're getting expert comment and that you're sharing that with your content team and your marketing team so that they can think about how to share that with clients as that um, particular you know, story unfolds or thematic, or the story becomes a thematic, which by that I mean it isn't just a sort of one day, 24 hour story. It is actually a capital market um, event that sort of has a tail and produces a lot of you know news as a result of its tail. And practical tip and practical question here. How would you practically go about making sure that there's that clear, transparent communication? Do you have a Alistair Campbell style comms grid or yeah, kind of what would you do? I do think from a press perspective, you want to be quite on top of of what you know is happening in the world over the year. So, you know, spend time with your team planning next queue, next queue, next queue as a next quarter, but also sort of mapping that out and making sure that everybody else is aware as well so that you can plan it. So, yes, yes to a grid. Um, yes, you need to understand what's coming up and, you know, certain events will affect you more than others, but also, you know, make sure that others in the organization are aware. So your marketing team is aware, your digital team is aware, your content team is aware and where you have to plan a campaign, you know, you're bringing, you're helping that all come together so that you can, you can map that out and decide how to, how to, you know, manage that campaign. So yes, I, we love a grid, you know, a lot of PR process, a lot of PR is being very organized, being very operationally savvy, and a lot of process. And there's some creativity on top. But you can't you don't want to be surprised in the morning at 7am. That's what you do not want, if you can possibly help it. No, that's very true. And probably same goes for yeah, you know, sort of keeping leadership aware as well. I, I don't think I've ever worked for an MD or a CEO who at some point either hasn't said to me or said on a town hall or something, you know, kind of the one thing they don't like is surprises. <laughs> so you've got to keep everyone aware of what's going on. So great tip. Yes. And I think I would add to that, you know, if you ever go to an interview as a PR and the person says to you, I want to be on the front page of the FT, I would say that act with caution on that one, because often the front page of the FT is not a place where a corporate wants to be. No. Generally speaking, if you're on the front page of the FT, it's not necessarily for good reason. <laughs> I think the fundamental rule about public relations um, and the difference between it and marketing is when you are working with journalists, they have an objective and their objective is to write a story that is newsworthy, that their editor will like and that their readers will read. Same goes for broadcast, same goes for podcast. And, you know, they are not there to be your friend. They are there to write the stories because the stories are the news. So be mindful that that is the relationship you are managing. I remember in the Conservative Party, somebody explaining to me in my first six weeks, you must understand, Natasha, you are the ham in the sandwich. One side of bread is the politicians. The other side of the bread are the journalists. And you are the conduit between the two. Yes. And even from my journalism degree, uh, it was just drummed into us all the time. Probe, ask questions, dig. You know, they're not there to be your mate. They're there to find out information. You know, I think also particularly, uh, it's a little anecdote, but certainly for anyone in politics or, you know, look, or even in the city, the amount of networking or news that can get generated at, at networking events in the evening after a couple of glasses of uh, 
of red wine. You know, you do you do still have to be aware and on your toes and um, careful with what you say. Yeah, you're always on parade. Absolutely. I, w- I would completely agree with you, Max. And I think when you start in politics, you really do understand the difference between what is on the record, so that is a quoted source, off the record, which is an anonymous source, but still quoted, and on background, which is not for print or publication, but can actually enable um, two parties to explain a situation with greater clarity, even though none of that conversation can ever be printed. Um, So, you know, I learned that really fast when I was in the Conservative Party doing communications, and it is a skill I've taken with me for my 20 years. So yes, you are always on the record unless unless you have negotiated your terms and conditions before the conversation starts. Yes, and even something as soft touch as a nice little double page feature art in the FT magazine at the weekend, even then, still needs to be on your toes. So that's a lovely um, segue because actually one of the things I really wanted to do at the Conservative Party was help to... um, uh, get the female vote out in advance of the election, because I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's actually female voters which decide our prime ministers. They did that with in 79 and they did that in 97 because women tend to live longer and there's more of them and they vote. So that was one of my jobs. Um, I really wanted to get the female vote out. And in order to do that, we had to not be in page three of the Times. We had to be in the publications that women read so lots of female focused magazines and female focused media and it was a lot of fun um except that occasionally you would meet somebody who would say but this is just you know this is just a girly magazine it's just not going to be that challenging of an interview and let me tell you they were the most challenging interviews and they would ask the most questions and if the politician was not prepped it would it would be unfortunate so never never judge a book by its cover never think this is an easy reading easy listening you know exercise and therefore i can wing it because there's nothing like it funny so clearly keir starmer's press team nicked your idea because starmer seems to be all over the glossies at the moment so uh, he knows what he's going for yeah what's the favorite or your favorite comms campaign you've worked on all of them (laughs) I love campaigns. So that's number one. And I think when you start in a political party, you understand you're just on one long campaign. Uh, And that, and that, and it picks and troughs, but it is one long campaign. You have one objective, which is to get into government. um, And you work at that. And when you've finished with that, you go into the local council elections and you're going to get into council. And then when we had European elections, it was to get into the European Parliament. Anyway, so yes, one long campaign. Doesn't answer your question, so let me answer it. I have worked on some really fascinating campaigns, and I think where they have worked really well from a PR perspective is where, you know, we have a clear objective from the corporate on what it is that we want to transmit as, you know, a message or a change or a point of differentiation. I would say that from a PR perspective, I was given quite a lot of freedom um, in, in my jobs in finance to create campaigns and to build them. And I did that. And, you know, so at Henderson, I did one once um, that was really focused around medical technology and medical devices and life sciences. And the reason why was because we had a really good team and they were excellent at life sciences. And and life sciences has moved on significantly in the last 15 years. It used to just be about pharmaceuticals. And now it's about biotech, med tech, med devices, software and so on. And the pharmaceuticals as well. 
So we went to the Welcome Museum and we had a tour of the Welcome Museum, which is a medical museum in the UK, uh, in London. And then we also had, I don't know if people know this, but the Welcome Museum and there is also the Welcome Trust, which is a foundation that supports medical research um, and that is self-funded. And there was we had their CIO talk about, you know, their investment strategy and what their purpose was, which was very different as a foundation, but equally, but equally interesting. And then we all went for dinner somewhere and then we threaded the whole sort of technology and thematic throughout the, 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 the following day's events. And I did the same again on geopolitical risk because, you know, geopolitical risk seems to have been a stalwart of capital markets for a long time now and you know did an event at the Churchill War Rooms because uh, geopolitical risk and Churchill War Rooms makes sense to me and then we had dinner somewhere else and we followed the thematic again throughout the the following day's events with all the journalists to make sure that we were always sort of touching upon that massive global thematic at the time. So I think you know campaigns work when they're relevant Campaigns work when they're relevant to what is going on in the world and to what's going on in capital markets. And that is how they need to be sort of sliced spliced together, you know, plattered in, because it has to be newsworthy. You can't just... So what PR is not is we have a new partnership. We have a new this. We have a new blah. That is not a story. That is an announcement. And yes, you need to make those announcements and they're very important to make. And there is a way you can make them and give them a, a bit of oomph, but they're not necessarily a news story. So how do you make working with people within an organization and ensuring that their comprehension of what makes a good news story and your comprehension of a good news story is a constant thread throughout um, a career in a corporate and you know you want to be making sure that you are demonstrating your value as a corporate communications team by showing them the stories that you have generated and the coverage that you have generated and how that ties in with you know your strategy your narrative but also making sure that you know those around you understand that an announcement is not a news story but if you want to make an announcement a news story there is a way to do it um, and you can work together to get there. Yes, funding that hook is really important. Yeah, funding the emotional strings as well, I think, is also very important. Being able to tap into that emotional response from someone, um, yeah, you know, really ramps up the engagement levels. And I love actually, yeah, kind of your two examples there, both with really cool and quite different events to them in an increasingly digital age. I think it goes to show that there is also a place for some face-to-face real-life interaction as well and I think particularly for the media relations piece as well it is amazing how much more impactful it is for them as journalists when they can actually see things face-to-face paint a bit of a picture they can have you know some on the record but some off the record conversations as well rather than just being spammed with a load of press releases in their inbox which doesn't work (laughs) Yeah, especially if your title of your press release is not news insightful or interesting. Um, so that's another story. But uh, you make some very valid points, uh, Max. Absolutely. And I think relevance, authenticity and interest is really important when you're trying to build out a campaign or even just a story. When you talk to me about sort of in-person versus digital. So I remember, you know, working 
obviously uh, at the Conservative Party. And I think, you know, one of the new social channels came in and I really can't remember which one it was. It might have been Twitter, um, which is now X. And I remember lots of people sort of getting very excited about it and everybody just going, yes, but it's just another channel. It's just another means for us to transmit the message. Let's remember that. We might do it slightly differently, but it's still another mechanism for us to transmit the message. And the message is you have a choice. Voters have a choice at the election. They can vote for this or they can vote for that. Let's make sure that their choice is simple and clear and transparent and credible. So I would say I would say kind of the same that's the, the same thing. It has become more sophisticated since then. There are certain things that work really well in social media that perhaps wouldn't work so well as a news story, but that's great because that gives you the opportunity to flex. And I would also say the other thing about communication, 20 years in communications, is it's all about relationships and it's all about trust. You are asking people, you are asking of people to do something that perhaps they would feel uncomfortable about and you are asking them to put their opinion in the public domain. If they do not trust you, if they do not feel that you are credible and responsible and you haven't done the cause and effect in your brain, before you suggest it to them, they will ask you all of those questions because they want to trust you and they want to know that you have considered every eventuality for doing something rather than them just saying yes and then considering every eventuality after the fact, which nobody enjoys. Yes, and I think it's also really important for comms people to remember that it's never their name that's quoted. It's either the fund manager or the CEO or whoever, or if it is just your quote, it's never your name. It's just a spokesperson said. Whereas, yeah, you know, kind of the fund manager or the CEO, it's not just the firm's reputation. It's their personal reputation, which is which is attributed to that quote. So, yeah, you know, they're the ones in the firing line and you're there to support them. So, yeah, trust is a really big thing. Trust is massive. And if you don't have trust, people don't trust you, it's going to be very difficult. So I think the thing that you're doing within your first 100 days of a new job is you are making sure that you are building, fostering that trust with all of your stakeholders, those who will be in the public domain and those who won't. Um, you're, you want to make sure that everybody understands that that they feel that you are a safe pair of hands um, and that you are going to consider the implications of something kind of in the round before you before you act. <laughs> no, of course. And that segues again nicely quite into, into CEOs and leadership. Who's your favorite CEO you've worked for in terms of their communications and why? So I've seen some really excellent politicians at work present, speak, lift an audience, take people on the journey with them. It is a, quite a skill. Having charisma and being able to harness that and build that rapport with a group of people whom you have never met before, who are in, in an audience and may never meet again, it's very special. It's quite unique. And I haven't seen that many people do it well. I think David Cameron, he he was just, he was really good on stage. He could really just bring it all together and be very, he was almost better when he was under pressure. Um, I felt like the pressure of a, a conference speech, it just, it worked for him. 
he could be really amazingly excellent and take the whole room with him in a very inspirational way because ultimately you know that's what you're trying to do with politics bring people on the journey with you I also worked for an exceptional politician who taught me a lot of my graft um, and he was called um, Mark Prisk um, and he was amazing because he had the intellectual rigor and he was willing to do the work to build out his communications as well and I could you know he would sit and play the chat show host um, in front of 4,000 people at Conservative Party conference and do it so well so expertly and you think about broadcasters and how much practice they have to put in to look really fabulous in front of a tv it's something else right and then in terms of ceos i really enjoyed working with andrew formica who is the ceo at henderson global investors and the reason why again is because he had the intellectual rigor he was an actuary he was an accountant and he was a fund manager I think. And he his head was big. He could do nice big thoughts and then wrap and pack them quite sweetly and succinctly and transparently um, and concisely. And he would always be willing to consider a media opportunity and make himself available. As a result of that, you know, he had a lot of profile. He helped to build the brand around Henderson. He helped to express the views of Henderson, which is now Janice Henderson, at the time when he was the CEO. So that was a real pleasure because he was very intellectually able but he could also describe things quite concisely and he was also very good in front of a camera and I think you know for CEOs learning not to be wooden is a skill that is something again that they have to add to their sort of their to-do list so as well as doing the day job you know as they working their way through the organization or the organizations, they've also got to build this whole kind of remit of skills of how to present, but they're not presenting in the same way to all audiences. You know, is the audience employees? Is it board? Is it shareholders? Are they in front of a journalist? Are they in front of a camera? Are they filming themselves because they're at COP28? Are they writing something? Are they giving an after dinner speech? Are they doing a a 10 minute uplift before somebody else is actually the keynote speaker? Are they opening a conference? All of these types of communications are different types of communications that require a slightly different skill set. And I and I love that. I love watching them in those different environments and see how they all do it. I find that endlessly fascinating. Yes, a real mix of talent, skill, emotional intelligence, and I guess also the ability to perform in many respects. It's a bit like being an actor, being able to go from, yeah, you know, one one format to a different audience, etc. And just being able to, yeah, sort of flick a switch and turn it on is pretty impressive, actually. And I will have to search for him on YouTube and find some of his old stuff because it's probably really good. Is he still working or? Andrew, he's in Australia now, so I'm not sure um, what he's doing. I've just worked with so many, so many people now. I do feel blessed in that respect. And they're not all CEOs, but they are all have been interesting. And I do love working with people and bringing them, bringing their views into the public domain and helping them make that leap. I've worked some with some really fantastic, you know, research experts as well at Morningstar who are incredibly knowledgeable um, and who are very competent and capable and and articulate. You know, it is a really great career being in communications because you do you do in a way you have a quite a lot of purpose in your function in a very pure sense, which is beyond you know how are we going to express this 
strategy or how are we going to build this campaign on a very pure and simple person to person level. It's like this person is extremely clever, very articulate and very knowledgeable. And that voice deserves to be in the public domain. How are we going to ensure that that voice is in the public domain and gets that kind of reflective depth um, and and gravitas that it deserves because this person has put in the work throughout their career to be that good. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're basically like a lighthouse and you just want to shine the light on the expert view because the expert view is so wonderful and slightly different and articulate. You know, how can you not do that? Yes. And as an extension of you being that lighthouse and shining the light, um, see, you're now a comms consultant for the financial services industry. So, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what you're up to and how you can help? Yeah, absolutely. So this is all very new. I've literally just started and I'm just working on my way through an interim contract at the moment, which I'm enjoying very much um, and is a fantastic team. But effectively, you know, I have 20 years of career and I feel like I understand asset management quite deeply now and profoundly. And I understand, you know, what themes are going to be confronting asset management over the next six to 12 months. And all of those need to be communicated. So I am available to help asset managers express their point of differentiation, you know, to show their clients, you know, why they are there and how they're going to help them and to help the experts, the fund managers um, and other experts to showcase their skill set um, and their expertise. Uh, so that is, you know, and that can be on a strategic level or a tactical level. There is obviously both. So I'm, that is what I'm going to build out and we'll see how it goes. But I'm very excited and I think it will just allow me to sort of play to my strengths. And I do feel like my strengths are I'm somebody that always comes in and sort of helps out on a project, delivers and then it's quite happy to sort of move on and, and do something else. Um, so I do see comms as a profession in many ways as a series of projects. Uh, you're always kind of moving from this to that to the other and trying to sort of keep all the plates spinning. So that will be great. Super. Lovely elevator pitch. Really nice. Like it. And where can potential clients find you? Where can they get in touch with you? LinkedIn is probably the best for now because unfortunately this has happened that the business is coming before the website. But there you go. We'll get the marketing strategy there. That's fine, you know, and LinkedIn is the B2B marketing channel these days. So, you know, kind of there's no point using anything else. So it's perfect. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but no, Max, I mean it's great to talk to you today. And you, you know, you're so right. And obviously, as somebody who recruits into the comms business all the time, you know better than anybody else what skills um, people are looking for. So thank you so much for having me today. It's been a, a real delight. Yeah, no problem. Pleasure. And um, and you managed to wrap up some of those sort of key skills and your experiences really well with some great examples. So thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And I'm sure I will see you personally soon, probably at a CIPR event. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Let's plug that. So we have a networking event for comms professionals who need to build out their network on the 13th of March. And they can find that on my LinkedIn profile as well. So do come Smashing. along. Yeah, can I see you there? All right. Cheers, Natasha. Thank you. Wow. What an episode that was. Natasha shared some brilliant insights uh, on communications in the industry. Really, really enjoyed her stuff around geopolitical uh, risk, how to position funds, 
fund managers, CEOs, as as thought leaders within the industry, and her early career in politics in that 24-hour news cycle, and being able to work, well, one, at pace, but also, two, when journalists are constantly scratching away and digging under the surface and trying to dig up dirt on politicians. Really, really enjoyed it. I hope you did, too. And if you did, please don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you like to watch or listen to it and until next time look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the comms coffee club podcast i've been max forsyth take care